Hello and welcome to a special edition of Women with Balls with me, Katie Balls. This episode is sponsored by NetWealth, the investment managers, and initially live streamed on Spectator TV, where we also took audience questions. You can watch the full episode on spectator.co.uk forward slash NetWealth. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. This episode is brought to you by NetWealth, the investment service, and we'll be talking about money through the generations. Do you talk to your children about what they do with their money? Do they understand how to save, how to invest? And do they know what your plan to do with your own savings and investments is? Why is there such a taboo when it comes to talking about money? To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by two exceptional female leaders in the City of London. They both have over 20 years of experience in the finance industry. Between them, they have 13 children and have been outspoken about working in the industry as a woman. With me today are Charlotte Ransom, the founder and CEO of NetWealth, and Baroness Helena Morrissey, the chairman of AJ Bell. Welcome both. Now, to start, Charlotte, you founded NetWealth in 2015. Uh, What's behind that? Well, um, having spent 25 years as an investment banker, um, I could certainly claim to know something about finance. But what I'd found was that I'd been working incredibly hard, earning well, but not really spending any time thinking about personal finance. And then in, in my last five years, when I was a partner at Goldman Sachs and running part of the private wealth business for them, I became very interested in private wealth management generally. And I became quite concerned about the sort of generic discretionary wealth management service in the UK in particular. And partly because I'm British, I was quite focused on on the UK. And it just struck me that there was no... um, there was there wasn't a way that the financial consumer today could really enjoy the benefits of modern technology. So they were still consuming a very old type of service model. Um, and really, the, the kind of eureka moment came after I retired from Goldman Sachs and I was sitting at home and I knew I didn't want to manage my own money, but I couldn't bring myself to give it to any of these other discretionary providers. Um, And so it was time to start a new business and really try to bring those two things together, traditional wealth management with great modern technology. Now, we're going to be talking about the generation gap today, so how, I suppose, children versus parents see this. And I just wondered, growing up for you, was finance discussed much? Uh, Was that something... I think I grew up in a very traditional English household. Uh, There were four children and and my mother and father. And I think it was really not discussed at all. The one thing I can remember is my father getting very energised about the discussion of endowment mortgages at the time that they came out. And he felt that they were absolutely going to the wall. It turned out that he was right. Um, But so intermittent things like that occasionally, but but not as a a, a generic subject that was discussed. Have you turned the tide now with your own children? Are you taking work home and making them? Well, uh, NetWealth does creep into some of our discussions at home. (laughs) Completely, huh? Um, Now, Helena, thanks um, for joining us today. You were on my podcast a few, one of my first ever guests. on highlight of you know my podcast appearances anyway. Yeah, thank you, Katie. Fond memories of that. That's why you're back. Um, (laughs) Now, um, you've done a of work uh, throughout your career when it comes to women and the gender pay gap and but ultimately also the investment gap mm. and I wondered do you think there is an investment gap when it comes to how women approach investing compared to men? Definitely um AJ Bell which actually I'm the chairwoman designate I don't okay. take over to, as the chair until the AGM hopefully um have done some research recently and actually uh, shown that women have less than half 
the investment and savings of men in this country, in the UK, which is quite shocking, really, because the gender pay gap is not that big. It's about 13% on average. But women are setting aside only £180 a month on average, and men are setting aside over £300. And then women tend not to invest it. You know, they put it in cash, which obviously, as we know, has got very no, low, non-existent interest rate these days. So it is a big concern of mine, because if we don't invest as much as men, uh, we won't have the same financial well-being. Women tend to live longer as well. So actually, we need to be investing and saving more. So I'm, I'm on a mission to try to correct that. And uh, you have nine children, so really helping us with the child count for um, today's episode. Um, are you starting to have these conversations with them? Are they interested in um, thinking about finance, you know, in like 10, 15, 30 years' time? Well, to varying degrees, which I think is going to be a theme of our um, discussion today. Um, my children age, range in age from 12 to 30. And they cover all manner of personalities when it comes to their attitudes to money, from spendthrift to really living quite monk-like existences and never seeming to need any money. But I do try to introduce it into conversations. I think it's very much about, though, not just imposing that this is money, this is what you need to learn, and making it very dry and academic. It's about bringing it to life and having it as a kind of normal conversation. I couldn't agree more with Charlotte about it being a taboo subject, including within families in many instances, which is missing a trick. And this is why actually this uh, NetWealth report, which I thought would be good just to open up with before we move to a wider discussion and Q&A, of which please do send your questions um, on the Spectator TV function in. Um, generation Game, Financial Tribes and fi Family Finance. Um, to be honest, I find it very eye-opening. <laughs> um, you have various tribes in there. I think the slight issue perhaps for me and probably if my parents are watching is the ones I'm drawn to, <laughs> the ones that sound the most responsible, but may maybe with time. Um, but Charlotte, I wonder if you could just give us the main takeaways from the report. Yeah, I mean, so you mentioned we've been going for five and a half years now, and, and over that time we have a lot of people coming to talk to us, and we know that a lot of people want to think about both themselves moving into retirement and, and making sure that they've got enough for themselves and then thinking about this question of how do I then make that next bit of the plan and how do I think about wealth transfer? And it's very clear that it is a difficult subject for many people and sometimes it's difficult because they're not sure how much they should be putting aside for themselves and then it often extends to the fact that it's not a natural conversation they don't feel necessarily to have with their children. Um, so it was something that we, we decided to, to do a survey of a, a thousand parents and a thousand um, young adult young adults aged between 25 to 35. And just to get a sense for sort of some of the things that stood out, um, fascinatingly, less than 25% of those young adult children had ever had an open conversation with their parents about their respective financial plans. And then, um, interestingly, among the parents, only just over half are thinking of splitting their money equally in their wills, um, which is probably not something, as, we, as far as we can tell, the children would expect. Yeah, and then, the spectator office was surprised when they heard this. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and then... the parents. Huh? <laughs> and another interesting aspect to it is that um, three-quarters of the parents felt that their children were pretty much on top of their finances, but their young adult children didn't think that. At least about half of them didn't feel as confident. So what we were exploring in it is that do you have this notion of a sort of money personality? And is there, if you like, a financial tribe that you might belong to? And, and I think it does help inform us a bit about how we connect with money. And I'm not going to go through all the financial tribes. There are seven in total. But um, for example, there's one that's known as the self-sufficient saver, which in fact is the most dominant tribe that people associated with. Um, and that's where people 
they like budgeting. They like sort of planning out their money. Um, it makes them feel safe and secure when they do it. But at the same time, they're always anxious. They don't have quite enough. And as a result, they tend to save and not invest. And I thought one of the really interesting things about that is if you look at the um, ISA statistics, for example, there's, there's over £600 billion in ISAs in the UK. And over half of that is sitting in cash which is a point that Helena was just making. And that's fascinating because the holding period for ISIS is over five years, and yet over half is sitting in cash. And so to me, it was quite interesting that almost half of those adults um, actually responded that they felt their tribe was the self-sufficient saver. And that seems to be playing out in the sort of national stats, in a sense. Um, another one which is really interesting is one called the wealth sceptic. And this is where you might be quite good at budgeting and quite on top of your finances. But there's this notion that actually wealth and the idea of having excess money is an unattractive or unsettling feeling. And this is something that we do find um, quite often comes up within families that they may have parents who are quite well off, but their young adult children, not necessarily all of them, but some of them might feel quite uncomfortable about that wealth. And we might go on to talk a little bit about some of the things we've experienced on the back of that. Um, and then a third one is what we call the head in the sand avoider. And, and again, I think actually, I think um, the financial services industry has a lot to answer for here because these are people who just find the whole concept of personal finance really quite overwhelming. So they know they should do something, but they find it very hard to engage with. And we do know that the, in part, that's simply because the literature and the regulation and the communication and everything is, is really made quite difficult for people. And sometimes it does become overwhelming. Um, but, but overall, the main takeaway really from the report, and I think we know this, is that communication within families and across generations is absolutely key. And we'll probably go on to talk a little bit about how perhaps, you know, to deal with this taboo and to try and help, you know, people get across what, what they need to do. And just before we delve into that, um, Helena, you recently wrote a report with AJ Bell about the gender investment gap. Um, looking at Charlotte's report, do you see any parallels uh, there? Well, definitely. I mean, um, so all of the points that Charlotte says apply to women, um, more so in many cases than men. Uh, as I mentioned, women tend to have less in investments. And so obviously, particularly if inflation is, is rising, their, their so-called investments, their savings in cash are going to see the purchasing power erode. You're going to be able to buy less with the existing pounds than if you invest it properly in, in stocks, shares, other assets and so forth. So we just see it compounded in the case of women. Uh, and I think as well, you know, the point that Charlotte's making about it being taboo subject, again, I would say women feel it seems even more unsettled, uncomfortable about talking about money. They talk about anything else other than money, even amongst their friends. Or if, The only examples I've ever come across have really been when people are, are in straightened circumstances and feel the absolute need to reach out to somebody. Other than that, particularly in the UK, um, and we've been talking about earlier when we were waiting to come on, about, you know, it's so different from America, where people talking about all the time what they earn, where they shop, you know, how much discount they get, um, what they are investing in. Um, I started my career a long, long time ago in the late 80s in New York, and everybody had 
all these conversations all the time about switching their mortgage to something that was more, you know, uh, attractive and would save money. And it was very open. And we need to get somewhere towards that. I don't think we should. I'm hoping we don't go all the way, but we need to we start talking British. about it. We are still British. I think we can go a long way down that road without losing what's, you know, special. But yeah. Yeah, no, no it's fascinating that 23% figure in terms of young adults who, the number who said they are having those open discussions. And I mean, in a way, Helena preempted my question, which is, why is it we're so bad at it? Is it a British thing where we don't think it's a done thing or it's crass to talk about money? Or is it the fact that, you know, often if you are talking about money, it's because you could seem pushy. So as Helena says, maybe if you are going to bring it up, it's when you're a bit more of a desperate situation. I think there's a lot of different subtleties to this. Um, I, I, I do think it's quite un-British, but I like to think that we're slowly changing that. Um, and I think that modern technology actually is hugely helpful in that respect. Um, but I think also, you know, one thing, for example, is to talk to your parents about when you die. That's not really a topic for Sunday lunch, you know, and the, the implication of talking about passing money on has some aspect of you passing on yourselves. So I think it's very much for the parents to start introducing this idea, not so much about um, necessarily their wills, as much as understanding that as you go through different periods in your life, um, there will be times when it's really helpful to start talking about concerns that you might have and, and, and problems that might arise that your parents, you may be surprised to know, can help you with. And I, I had an interesting example just recently with someone who was saying they actually approached their parents to say, I know my brother needs some money now more than I do and I would much prefer that you're able to go and help him. I understand that it may well mean that you don't end up splitting your wealth equally but I, I as his sibling feel that this would be the right thing to do. So I think uh, in this case the, the parents were quite surprised and it helped release a whole sort of um, sort of torrent of, of emotion around this subject which can be so difficult for people to, to want to talk about. And after that it sort of just opened it up as being something that actually okay I understand now that we're all pretty much on the same page. I think the other thing is that if you're not on the same page, and of course there are going to be situations where people within the family think differently about this, there is nothing better than talking about it. Because the biggest problem otherwise is, you know, maybe for the person whose money it is, they may have passed on, but they leave that problem to children and maybe grandchildren and they leave all sorts of possibility for the family disruption that could actually have been sorted out had some of this been addressed earlier on. Yeah and it's really interesting because um, you know the number of legal disputes over family legacies hit a high in 2020 I think mm. um, so you can start to see and I just wondered I suppose broadly maybe um, you Helen what kind of problems do you think do arise if, if you're not talking about what money someone is likely to receive. Obviously, you never quite know what's definitely going to happen. Um, well, there's an emotional uh, issue around money, um, whether it's inheritance or just, you know, having enough to live on and so forth. I think for all of us, there's some sort of emotional baggage that comes with, you know, our, our money situation. I think, you know, I mean, it's going to sound rather dramatic, but the question that you don't ask and obviously isn't implied by parents not necessarily giving equal amounts of money in their wills or, you know, to their children overall, it doesn't mean they don't love them equally. And I think people will assume, will assume sometimes, oh, that this, you know, they'll, they'll re read into the silence. 
um, and it might not be at all clear. I thought it was fascinating, Charlotte, in your report where there were all the different reasons given. And when you read through it, yes, only half of parents roughly were going to give equal amounts to their children when they die. But actually, some of it was about making things more equal at that point. They might have given a gift during their lifetime and so forth. So again, I think you could end up with um, terrible emotional upsets and people falling out when already they're dealing with death and, you know, the, um, the loss that comes with that. So, yeah, it, it seems so obvious. I think people just shy away from talking about death and money and you put the two together and it's, you know, a double whammy in terms of actually having that conversation. And I don't think it is for every Sunday lunch. It's for, you know, the like my dad said to me the other day when I was leaving visiting um, his house, he said, you know, I just need to talk to you about, you know, my will and money and, uh, you know, what I like to do in terms of gifts over the next few years and so forth. And he was the one that broached it. And we had a really, you know, I, I didn't I didn't want to think about it in some ways, but he was right to. Um, yeah, and I find it really interesting when you crunch down the figures of those who are not planning to you know, share inheritance equally, that you had, you know, quite similar numbers saying, I'm going to leave more to my child who's the most responsible. Well, yes, and also some of them saying, I'm going to leave my, child, my money to the child who's least responsible. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so any children watching or young adults get responsible or give the impression of being responsible quick. So. Exactly. Um, but I suppose one of the things, Charlotte, is one of the calculations, I suppose, and Helena just touched on it, is a lot of people will be wondering whether they should be doing gifts, um, you know, spreading out uh, potential inheritance mm. or going to the end. What kind of factors should someone consider in, in those mm. scenarios? Well, well, this is actually, I think, a really interesting point because, of course, there is some tax efficiency to getting your plans in place early. And I would argue there's some absolute joy in terms of getting some of these plans in place early and, and, in, and giving while living and seeing your children benefit from it. Um, so um, there is this seven-year uh, inheritance tax sort of window, if you like, that you need to gift money and it's only after seven years that it falls fully outside of your estate. And so it is always worth starting to think about the gifts that you want to make and and making those plans. And you can only do that if you know, of course, how much you're going to need yourself. And like I said at, at the beginning of the discussion, I think this is one of the things that hold people back because they're anxious about starting to gift if they haven't really yet figured out, OK, within my estate, how much of it do I need to hang on to um, for myself, for my spouse, you know, whether we may need care home fees to pay or, or whatever it may be. So there's a lot to be said, first of all, to make sure, and it actually doesn't matter what age you are, I would say. I mean, if you're in your 50s or in your 60s, and even if you're not even thinking about retirement with yet, maybe it's still 10 years away or 15 years away, it's well worth starting to just make an assessment about, OK, so if it were 10 years in 10 years' time that I retire, how much money do I think I would need? Have I got sufficient, um, you know, have I got sufficient with an with a extra bit on top? And now let's think about, can I start to have these conversations with my young adult children and start to help them get set up with their first flats? Or, you know, can I help them um, think about something that, that maybe is worrying them and, and pay off those student loans or whatever it, it might be that's bothering them? And and I think that this concept of starting to give while living is, is actually quite a powerful one. And it does tend to presuppose that you're having conversations with your children, that you trust them, 
uh, that you trust that their partners are going to be people that you feel confident over time, um, that you're, you're happy that whatever decision they make will be one that you will stand behind because you lose control, obviously, of your money at that point. Um, so actually, this question of control is one of the other things that holds people back, that they're anxious that should they start giving it and circumstances change. And the lovely girl they thought their son was going to marry suddenly disappears and somebody else turns up that they're not so keen on. But that's just that's being a family, you know. And, and um, you know, as Helena was saying, there's plenty of emotion that goes with that. That's nothing to do with finance, of course. But I think if you can start to get yourself organised, it's, it, it's just a tremendous amount of relief, if nothing else, to just have that sense of, OK, I know where we stand and I can now make that decision about starting to give. And I can think about some of those subtleties that we just covered. But, but I'm in a position where these conversations can start happening. Um, now I'm going to start on some audience questions shortly. So do keep sending them in. It's, it's just in the spectator TV function. Um, but just before we get there, I wanted one of the things that I suppose might put a parent off, whether it is an immediate gift or um, telling their child how much they are you know, eventually going to get is a worry it could demotivate them. In a way, you want your child to be working very hard to make money on their own terms and then perhaps have a, a nice surprise when they find themselves in a, a better position later down the line. Um, Helen, do you think there's a way to tackle that? So, Because I wonder, I don't know if you feel it as a dilemma yourself when you're thinking about all nine <laughs> yes all nine is quite a daunting prospect if I'm going to be equal and you know yeah. all that but the um so I I do think it's a question of tailoring to the individual and um, this is something we touched on briefly and you mentioned in terms of the tribe so again I think there are certain people who probably would think okay hang up my boots I don't need to try so hard and are very perhaps um you know less motivated uh, as as human beings you know to work hard and then there are others that it would clearly make no difference to and they would treat it responsibly and so forth it does you know the clear message coming across is okay give your your parents the strong impression that you're very responsible with money and that you'll carry on working really hard but I think it comes back to really how you bring up children you know because clearly uh even the wealthiest I mean we see this often let's say billionaires saying that they are not going to bequeath their wealth to their children they want them to make their own way in the world most of us want to help our children out and to, for them to have a slightly easier path in life than we might have had. So finding your own way there and making sure that they understand this is not sort of a replacement for your own achievements in life. I mean, that's just part of parenting, I think. But there may be one or two people that you have to hold back a little bit and make it a little bit secretive until they are responsible enough to, to make their decisions for themselves. Maybe something I could add to that, because I think it's, um, it's something that we've seen and it's actually a really interesting thing about when you make a decision to give, this is when it becomes so important to know the type of personality your child has. And the example I wanted to give is that we actually had a father who had decided to give each of his children a pretty significant sum for their first house. And it turned out that of his three children, two of them put that money towards buying pretty lovely houses for themselves. And the third one gave it all away to charity. And, you know, it, it's fascinating. The father was very upset. He hadn't expected it. Um, you know, one could say, well, it was laudable of, of, of this young adult to take that view and to think that actually someone should do more with this than me. But one of the things that was very striking to me was, was not just the father's surprise, because it does seem to indicate that they didn't necessarily see the differences between how their children might behave. But the other thing is that that young adult child 
probably also didn't appreciate what the options are to do with a significant chunk of wealth. So let's yeah. say they felt, well, I can, I can go and live in a flat perfectly happily for 25% of that money. Actually, if they'd understood that they could have taken the money perhaps and put it into a charitable trust and then have something which over time would go to good causes, but that rather than having to chuck a massive lump sum at something where, you know, you're never quite sure that's all going to go to to the cause that you might want, but actually let them learn through experience about how to give and how to live with wealth, both have a roof over their heads and do the sort of thing that really matters to them. So this is another, I think it's a great example and a true life example of, of yeah. things that happen. Going through the tribes, am I correctly diagnosed that the person is a wealth sceptic? Yes, <laughs> correct. Yes. Because <laughs> um, I just briefly want to talk about investments and actually it touches on a bit, which is I, do you notice a generational divide or is that too simple in terms of the type of investments, whether that is, you know, a single goal, um, you know, someone has when it comes to money they've made or inherit, or or actually the fact they want to do it in more kind of um, worthy, invest, you know, mm. uh, environmental factors, mm. things like that? Well, th there's no doubt that the whole move towards socially responsible investing is something which has captured the imagination, in particular, I would say, of millennials. So sort of people up to the age of, say, you know, 35, 40. Um, we definitely see that that's much more prevalent in, in let's call it, the younger generation. Um, but I think also, inevitably, older people have slightly more complex financial lives um, because they are maybe they're thinking about mortgages, they've also got school fees, they might be, if they're older, thinking about retirement planning, um, they may be thinking about divorce. You know, there's a number of things that go on as you get older which wouldn't necessarily be on a sort of typical millennial's plate in the same in the same quantum. Um, and this is actually where I think technology is so very helpful in terms of helping people, I always call it, get closer to their money. So in other words, have a mechanism to allow them not just talking about money, but yeah, actually, actually interacting with like money yeah. beyond a budgeting tool, but mm -hmm. actually to think about investments and how they line up with what you're trying to do. So most people at Net Wealth and at the sort of, if you like, at the parent level, um, will have several different goals that they're thinking about and investing towards. And what that means is they will have different risk levels that they associate with those goals that they're trying to achieve. And that actually, and for women in particular, we found that that's hugely powerful to help them, um, you know, envisage um, how this money is being put to work as opposed to it just sort of being put into a, just a one pot and kind of fingers crossed that it does what it's meant to do. Well, I, I would just add, because I think that you mentioned about technology being such a sort of enabler, I think it also helps people just get started and exploring about money. Because, mm -hmm. again, we, you know, our generation, you know, wasn't taught anything uh, systematically anyway at school or in the classroom in any walk of life, really, whether at university and so forth. I think that there is some these days in terms of life skills that my youngest, who's 12, particularly enjoys, where they do talk a little bit about budgeting and debt and so forth. But mostly... A lot of the reason why people don't get started investing, particularly women, is they say they just don't know how. So having online resources, having apps, you know, we all used our banking apps now, aren't we? So that we look, maybe not daily, but very frequently, um, we've got in the habit of looking at money issues. And again, apps can really help just in terms of keeping track. You can start small, you can start with £10 a month. You don't have to have £10,000 to get started on investing. Um, so if anyone's watching who hasn't ever invested before, you know, you can just take one step at a time and get used to it and see what happens to your money and then keep adding. Overall, time in the market is much better than timing the market or trying to.
Yeah, because I was going to ask Helena on that, just in terms of, I suppose, more likely to be younger individuals, mm. but you never quite know. It's almost encouraging for people to take this long-term approach, and I think particularly when you were, I know it's, you know, late teens, 20s, early 30s, um, you're ten, five years seems like quite a long time yeah. to a degree to put some money away, given yeah. all the things that could change, let alone 10 years, 15 years. I think yeah. it can seem almost uh, a little bit overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I wonder, and it goes back to the study in a way to a degree, the fact that parents tend to almost take more positive perception of having control younger people than they personally do. So how do you think you can get people to think about that when people are really quite worried about the day-to-day? So I think that even though everyone says, and it's true, think of it in terms of a three to five year horizon at a minimum when you're investing in risky assets like the stock market, obviously your money isn't, unless you invest in very illiquid things, your money isn't locked up. You know, you can access it. And again, people get it's sort of recklessly cautious about this. They sort of think, oh, I just might need the money. And so never get into the habit of investing uh, on a regular basis. If you start and then you find, actually, you know what, I'm not missing that £10, £20, £50 a month, and then you have a pay rise, you think, well, I haven't had that before, let me just add that in, then suddenly you'll look and you'll have a really interesting, you know, sum of money that you could do something like put down a deposit for a flat or buy something that was otherwise um, unaffordable. So I think it's, I think just getting, trying to not always see what might go wrong. And I say that being very conscious that markets are very volatile at the moment and there's lots of uncertainty, but there always is. So if you just get into that habit, the only regret I have in my investment life is not starting sooner. You know, once it got started, I never, I mean, there were things that didn't go well and so forth, but just get into the habit, treat it like physical well-being or your mental health. You know, you kind of do things every day. These days we're all very conscious of just trying to eat reasonably healthily or, you know, walk our steps, you know, which I failed miserably in the cold today. But Yeah, I failed on the stairs. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. To catch the audience questions and more advice from Charlotte and Helena on investing and inheriting, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash netwealth to watch the rest of the discussion.